Why are things so magical to an audience? Why do things last so long? Because it's so touching and because it's meaningful. And that story touches you. It's universal. It was a beautiful story. to another edition of Spotlight, the Star Trek podcast from a non-Trekkie perspective. I'm Liam Dempsey and I'm joined by my usual co-host, Matt. Greetings, guys. And Paul. Howdy, Spotlighters. And we are also joined by a returning guest, Mr. Boyd Hilton, I would say possibly the most prominent TV critic in the UK. Hello, sir. Oh, don't be ridiculous. I, I don't think that's a ridiculous statement, Boyd. I've got to say, okay. I've got to be honest. I would say you're, okay. you, you're at the forefront of your medium, sir. You are a TV editor for Heat magazine, I believe, and also for Pilot TV and Empire magazine now, right? Um, if you Well, I'm actually the entertainment director of Heat magazine. I mean, it, who cares? But I, I'm just, you know, oh, okay. just putting it out there, just in yeah. case people are, are, um, are credit obsessives. That's my job at Heat. And Empire, I'm a contributing editor, uh, Empire, which means I basically um, write every month, something every month, pretty much, or, or more, one or more things, and come up with ideas for their TV coverage, the ever-expanding TV coverage of Empire, and, of course, the Pilot TV podcast as well, yes. So, today, boy, you are joining us to discuss The City on the Edge of Forever. Probably, I would say possibly the most celebrated Star Trek original series episode. Captain's log, no star date. McCoy has changed the course of time. What are you? I am the guardian of forever. Now. All right, come on. Oh, how careless of your wife to let you go out that way. What? One day soon, man is going to be able to harness incredible energies, maybe even the atom. Speculation. I find her most uncommon, Mr. Spock. Murderers! Assassins! I'm in love with Edith Keeler. Edith Keeler must die. Now, usually, this is where I would ask you, Boyd, why did you pick this episode? But I kind of feel bad saying that because I feel like I kind of pushed you in the direction of this episode. Because you did have a couple of other picks of episodes that you would have liked to have done. The Menagerie two-parter. Uh, and also the trouble with the tribbles. And the only reason I kind of avoided these is because we've already covered the cage on the podcast, which, of course, the Menagerie features long clips of. And trouble with the tribbles, we've already done Charles and Tribulations, which is the 30th anniversary episode. And, and also lists loads of it, too. Yeah. yeah, again, it includes loads of segments of Trouble the Tribbles. So we were kind of like, oh, shit, we've already kind of covered massive parts of those. So whereas this seemed like uh, an original thing. And also a part of it was obviously on the Pilot TV podcast, boy, where you host with James Dyer, who is a massive Trekkie, a huge Star Trek fan. You are often arguing with him whenever Star Trek is mentioned because he doesn't like the original series, despite being a massive Trekkie. Yeah, what a bellend. But you're right, you you, you, you drove me <laughs> roughly, roughly in the direction of this episode. And I could have could have picked myriad other episodes of the original and best series yeah james is such a weird it's such a weird thing to me i mean he's much younger than me let's let's face it you're all much younger than me <laughs> so i'm an old man i was born in the year that the city on the edge of forever aired so i was born in 1967 wow yeah i, I am that old I, I was brought up watching star trek on bbc2 of an evening when it was repeated constantly on a loop um seemingly 
throughout my childhood and early and kind of early teenagers as well and so the whole thing had a huge impact impact for me the whole series as a whole the original series as a whole and on my love of science fiction and tv in general in fact and so james's fetish for what deep space nine's his favorite isn't it um iteration yes yeah. deep space nine is his favorite yeah. i mean whatever it's just but I, think it's, <laughs> I think it's willfully perverse because he is a proper trekkie he's like full-on star trek obsessive and I'm I'm not, and I don't know, if, and, and you all are not as much as he is, I don't think. So, but he is, and um, definitely not to, as much as he is. Yeah, to have that lack of respect for what started it all for the original um, show, he's quite dismissive of it, in my experience. I mean, I'm talking for him about him here, like he can defend himself. <laughs> You're like, but, it's quite disgusting. Yeah, how it's dare disgusting. He? Is that, that's the word. So <laughs> he's he being a bellend about it. And the other thing is, he's totally wrong about. I remember um, he's totally wrong. Star Trek: The Motion Picture is another formative experience for me. And we can. I, I know it's a side issue. We're not discussing it now. But he thinks it's shit, right? He thinks it's absolutely <laughs> Never terrible. A side issue here. And it's really unfair because that was an incredible experience. I could tell you now, going to see Star Trek: The Motion Picture in the cinema as I did on the day it came out in whatever fucking year that was, was a phenomenal experience. I know it's really slow and boring, but so, by the way, is 2001 <laughs> Space Odyssey, one of the greatest films I've made. 2001 is quite slow and boring. Let's not mess about. So for the ambition <laughs> and for the ambition and just the incredible excitement of bringing the cast of the original TV series to the big screen in a really bold and ambitious way, albeit with some really boring moments, was, uh, so that so I even love that film as well, is what I'm saying, in addition to the original yes. Star Trek series but, and this episode. But boy, did you have the Happy Meal toy that went along with the motion picture release, if you were the right age there. <laughs> I don't think, uh, Michael Thomas was it in the UK, maybe, then, yeah. I don't remember. I don't, I probably not, because um, probably my parents were probably too middle-class and snobbish to let me have one and, and you know, let me go to <laughs> McDonald's or whatever the fuck it was. <laughs> so probably not, for that reason. <laughs> They didn't listen to the Klingon on the advert. Take it from a father who knows. <laughs> no, they absolutely did not. No. <laughs> I wonder, boy, like thinking about you know growing up with this original series on repeat, as it you know, was it yeah. evident to you at that young age that sitting from here to forever stood out as a particularly great episode? I picked it even then. Yeah, even, I, I have very, very strong. There aren't. There's lots of. I can't remember many things about my childhood. To be honest, I have a terrible memory. But some things stick out really quickly, and mostly, funnily, funnily enough, they're related to TV or feel, going to see films or watching TV shows. And I remember very clearly watching *The City on the Edge of Forever* and being absolutely bowled over and amazed by its. Again, I'm going to use that word ambition. You know, it's got Nazis in it. It's got. Um, <laughs> It's got the whole the whole idea of history being played out on like this kind of screen, and then Spock, you know, can watch history being played out in front of his eyes and somehow record it as well. I mean, what, whatever, whatever the hell was going on there, and then to have a storyline, and we will get into it, obviously, whereby they've got to avert the Germans winning World War Two, basically, and um, ruining the whole world. <laughs> it felt like such a big, you know, I must, I was probably about, I would, my guess is I was probably about 10, 9, 10 when I watched it for the first time. And um, I just thought that was incredible, really, um, to have such a massive kind of idea at the centre of this episode. There's all, you know, Star Trek had big mm. ideas throughout, throughout its run and, you know, in every iteration, but this felt bigger to me than anything I'd seen before, I think, on TV at the time. That's my memory. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely one of the uh, big points of this episode, it feels, where it, it, you're right, it's this big idea and then it's played out on such a small, intimate scale. And it's a really interesting example of Star Trek playing with big, high-concept ideas whilst rooting it in the characters they've been building up for a season and giving, you know, like a love story to one of them as well. And I think it really resonates. Like everyone that says anything about the ending and the episode in general, I think, I think they're right in that it really hits that balance so well. In terms of the Kirk character, you've seen him sort of have romances with a certain number of uh, alien ladies throughout the series. <laughs> and, you know, he's found the one here. This is his uh, Diana Rigg in uh, Magic Secret Service, isn't it? He's like, yeah. we've seen him be the playboy, and now here's the one. It's like, I'm in love with her, Spock. Yeah, he does fall in love with her in about 20 minutes, doesn't he? I mean, let's face it. <laughs> but it's it is John Collins' boy, do you know? Oh, so, 100%. But but 20 minutes in a, in a 45 minute episode, that's a lifetime. You're, well, clear, yeah, almost literally a lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they get through an incredible amount, don't they, in this 42 or whatever minutes it is. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely crammed. It's crammed in. in. Yeah. yeah, it's astonishing, really. You have the whole preamble with Bones and the, and the accident and revealing the Guardian forever. It takes about 10 minutes just to get into the past, which is like, oh, you've kind of used up a lot of your time there. But 
it does feel like it's not rushed. It kind of sets it all up because it's, it's big concepts like take time to sell, I think. Oh, completely, yeah. Because, yeah, you, it's a while before you, you then meet the Guardian of Forever. And that, that stuff reminds me of Star Trek The Motion Picture a little bit. This kind of weird godlike figure voiced by the brilliantly named Bartel LaRue. I mean, what a fantastic name. <laughs> <laughs> Bartel LaRue. Sounds like a southern lawyer. It does. It really does. Um, <laughs> a client. Fantastic, fantastic name. Like, um, what's his name's character in, um, in Knives Out? What's that that character called? Um, oh, Benoit, Benoit Blanc. Blanc. Yeah. It could be Benoit Blanc's assistant, Bartel LaRue. Um, <laughs> uh, Knives Out 2. Okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's so, an idea for the sequel, to be honest. Like, Benoit Blanc introduced I mean, himself, and then suddenly, and my assistant, <laughs> I am the guardian of forever. They can have that. They can have that, yeah. Behold. to your own past if you wish there's the whole beginning with McCoy going bonkers and by the way what a performance I think from DeForest Kelly just because he has to go completely nuts for most of the episode and he doesn't hold back does he He kind of full-on crazy eyes performance by him he's amazing I think he clearly loved the opportunity to go to go bonkers he's been studying Shatner for a whole season Uh, yeah, he's going absolutely nuts here because that whole that whole preamble feels almost like a different episode for a bit. It feels kind of like a yeah. comedy pre yeah, but agree. played really seriously because DeForest Kelly is really going for it. And the whole idea of like a bones gets high essentially angle is such a uh, uh, like a contrivance in a way just to get to the main story. Like it's a typical thing of pre-titles of a hour-long episode being something completely separate to get to the main part. And it seems so weird and of itself to begin with, but then later plays in so perfectly in being that, you know, crazy old bones showing up in this time is what disrupted the timeline anyway. So it all comes together. But yeah, the, those beginning scenes of DeForest Kelly, he is just bug-eyeing it like crazy and looking absolutely nuts. And like, you know, props to the uh, the makeup as well, because they really kind of give him extra sweat and weird skin patches that kind of die down as he gets better. It's really well done. Yeah, very well done. Well, it's like you say, it takes quite a lot of setup, doesn't it? Because the whole thing is, is what, what really tickled me is obviously it was only a couple of episodes ago that we were talking about Tomorrow Is Yesterday, which is like episode 20 of season one of the original series, which is where they go. They also go back in time. And this is like nine episodes later. And obviously the uh, the time travel method that they were using in Tomorrow Is Yesterday is the slingshot manoeuvre, which they use again in Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. Whereas here, nine episodes later, they have to come up with a completely different method of time travel. And it felt like a really weird thing to me in terms of, I was like, this kind of shows like how far TV has moved on because clearly there was no no one was talking to each other and going like oh we actually did time travel nine episodes ago this is how we did it it's like no we have to come up with a magical stone archway that'll do yeah 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 completely because the other one is sort of based in even though it's bollocks. It's sort of based in some kind of science, where this mm. is very kind of magical kind of fantasy. But I kind of like yeah. that they have this discussion, like Spock and Kirk, about like, oh yeah, we could use this and we could go back one day and then we could sort it all out and everything like that. And they're a bit, a bit quite calm and rational in their discussion. And meanwhile, Bones is just like, fuck you! And leaps <laughs> into the, kind of the portal <laughs> and just fucks everything up. Yeah, it's also one of the other things, reasons probably why I love it is that it's also Star Trek meets Doctor Who because really the device of this portal, basically, and they can go anywhere in time and space, much as you do if you go in the TARDIS. And of course, you know, Doctor Who was my other big obsession growing up. So I think possibly the timey-wimey element of this episode and the different, as you say, this different technique to the previous episode where they went back into the past, this feels much more, again, a kind of, a really big idea at the centre of it. Such is the nature of the writing of this episode. I think it's brilliantly conceived and written, by the Mm. way. It's kind of wild that this doesn't just become the default time travel technique from this point on. It's it's, it's great that it does show up again in the animated series and recently in Discovery, which is a great kind of twist to that third season episode. But it feels like once they set up something like a magical omnipresent archway door it's like well there's your time travel for every everything we yeah. need and it's yeah. just like no let's have all these different i mean if he'd shown up in the um abrams first movie as as the way that you know instead of the black hole like that could have been something as well yeah definitely definitely but i, I love that the design of it is so funny as well because is it so is it true because I, I have been obviously you read up on the internet about it and it seems to be the case because you look at it 
And they arrive at this deserted place where this portal exists, this kind of um, this hoop to jump through. And, and on the floor, <laughs> on the ground surrounding it are like pillars, like broken pillars from like random ages in history, uh, which as a design, as a production design thing, did seem very random. And apparently the story is that it was a mistake in the script and a misreading of the script. In the, in the original Harlan Ellison script, he wanted runes, R-U-N-E-S, runes to be surrounding the set design of this portal thing. And they, but they got ruins instead. They misread it. And so that's why. Did you read <laughs> this? That. Have you read about this? That's why. I, I, had, no, I had read no. it, yeah. It's, I'm it's literally funny. just looking at it now on the wiki. Yeah, yeah. this is mad. So he admitted that his I mean, memory was faulty and he'd actually told the other guy the set should appear ancient, incredibly ancient, with runes everywhere. But, uh, yeah, slurring the word runes, apparently. <laughs> I, I mean, of course, yeah, that brings us around to the fact that this episode was written by Harlan Ellison, the only episode of Star Trek he ever wrote. Harlan Ellison, obviously, a very prolific sci-fi writer across lots and lots of mediums and i know that his original script for this was far bigger and more epic and since then the original script's been published and they've adapted it into like a graphic novel adaptation and all kinds of things because it's a lot a lot bigger harlan anderson of course famously got credit on the terminator as he actually sued the producers uh, for the similarities from the plot to one of his Outer Limits episodes, Soldier, for 1964. So he's got a thanks on that. That's probably the thing, in a weird way, that he's become most famous for. But he was this huge kind of sci-fi writer, won loads of awards and stuff. And, you know, I, I think his writing here is pretty amazing. I, I, I think there is a reason this this stands out, and I think his script is is pretty special. Well, I think it's important to kind of note that this is a script that went through many rewrites and a lot of other people who DC Fontana and Roddenberry took stabs at like what we actually see and his oh, original okay. sort of sort of screenplay or script for this would have cost three times the budget of the reg of an average episode and really had to be pared back. So I think it's fair to say that he originated the story, but ultimately it's a, it was a real team effort to get this one to to the screen and actually contain it within the 45-minute time slot. So, I mean, he, the award was won based on the, on submitting the original script, and uh, that kind of raised a few heckles, you know, from, uh, from Robert Reed to sport. Like, well, yeah, of course, a lot of them would win awards if you were allowed to kind of, like, you know, triple the budget on every episode. But it, it doesn't sound like he was much of a team player. <laughs> Put well, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, a difficult isn't it? man to work with. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he was furious, wasn't he, about the whole thing. He, he wasn't happy with the treatment of his original script. Um, and in fact, he wrote a book about it, I believe. He wrote, a book, he wrote a book in which he included his original screenplay and various essays and various kind of complaints on his part, seemingly, about the rewriting of his original script. So there was like drug dealing in the original. It sounds quite a different thing, yeah, from his, from his script. But I have to say, actually, as often happens in these situ kinds of situations, even though, you know, the great writer has probably been done a disservice. And I'm sure and clearly he felt very, very pissed off about the whole thing. But what you end up with, with the committee element, with the producer and the showrunner and, you know, etc. getting involved, is that is probably a better story than Harlan Edson's original? I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm kind of guessing and presuming. Yeah, I, I think that's quite possible. I think, you know, sometimes... Um, I think the the original kind of story and script and like intention, I think the emotion of the story is is probably down to Ellison. But at the same time, uh, I think sometimes these constrictions and stuff are good. Like, you know, sometimes limitations yeah. breed creativity. There's one huge element, which probably is my favourite bit of the show, would have been very different if Harlan's original pitch had made it to the screen. And that is that Spock, has to stop the character from saving Edith Keeler because yeah. Kirk cannot emotionally do it. And I think that's the power of this is that he it's Kirk holding on to McCoy and has to deal with him shining. could have saved her in his face, like as he knows what he's done. Without that, the ending would, wouldn't have resonated quite as well as it does. Deliberately stop me, Jill. I could have saved her. Do you know what you just did? He knows, Doctor. He knows. 
that's a real like stab to the gut, isn't it? Because the way he does it, it's not a case of he has to, like you could have imagined a version of the ending where he has to make sure she's in traffic or push her in front of something or something like that. He he essentially kills her by stopping somebody else from saving her, which is of course what he wants to do but can't. So it's like a double-edged sword where he's doing a thing which he knows will result in her death. And the thing he has to do is stop Bones from doing what he wants to do. And I think that power of Bones not knowing the yeah. importance of what he's doing. And I think Shatner sells it so brilliantly in that kind of, when he's holding Bones and he's kind of, you know, holding him, like hugging him almost, he kind of is looking away and squeezing his eyes shut. And he, he gives so much in that. And of course he gets the more hammy moment in, in many ways, a bit later on, where he's kind of, oh, you know, fist to the mouth and giving it all emotion for the close-up. But even in that initial moment where he stops Bones from saving her, it's he's he's given it all there. But yeah, what do you reckon of the whole? Th- you going back to the thirties because obviously that's where they end up. They were making a political point, weren't they? Not uh, you know, with looking at the the depression. Um, there's so many elements to this because they talk about what the depression was. In case if you don't know, in case the kids are watching, and I, I, when I was presumably when I was nine, ten years old watching, I had no no idea what was going on. So they explained what the Great Depression was, and I mean, there's one line I wrote. I wrote the note, Kirk, a classic bit of um, William Shatner emphasis, weird emphasis, weird line reading when he says when they first arrive. <laughs> And him and Spock are talking about how they've landed in the middle of the Great Depression. And, and Kirk says, an economic upheaval had occurred. And he look, does the had. He really goes, an economic upheaval had occurred. And it's such a weird, uh, it's just a weird <laughs> emphasis. It's such an odd classic bit of shat in the line reading. And then there's the other um, discussion later on when he's talking to Joan Collins. And she has this line, all the money they spend on war and death you know, about the kind of state of the world and about, you know, war. And he says, yeah, make them spend it on life. And that's like a political, almost pacifist comment, which is then undermined by the whole what happened, the whole storyline of what happens to her when she launches her own (laughs) anti-Nazi, anti-fascist pacifist group that inadvertently causes the Germans to win World War II. Big ideas. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was like, I was amused by like the the idea ends up being very anti, like peacenik, like just kind of like, oh, oh yeah, by kind of. Well, they did say it's the right idea at the wrong time. Yes, they do, they yeah. do, which I like. They kind of save it. I almost felt like it maybe that was a, a, a tug of war between Ellison's ideals and Roddenberry's because Roddenberry was very forward thinking, utopian vision and stuff like that. And I thought maybe it was a case of he he threw that in about like, oh, peace is the right idea, but it just so happened on this occasion because we were dealing with like, you know, the greatest evil that's ever been seen, the Nazis, everything like that. It, it wasn't a good idea this time, you know? Uh, yeah, I agree. I, I think it's also brilliantly written, brilliantly nuanced writing, I think, because on the one hand, you've got this lovely woman, the Joan Collins character, Sister Edith Keeler. You could see, you know, you could see actually in her performance and in the, in, in the writing of the character why Kirk would fall in love with her in 20 minutes, as he does. Good evening. You'll be sorry. Why? You expect to eat for free or something? You gotta listen to Goody Two Shoes. And now, as I'm sure that somebody out there has said, it's time to pay for the soup. Not that she's a bad-looking broad, but uh, she really wanted to help out a fellow in need. Shut up. Shut up. I want to hear what she has to say. Yes, of course, Captain. Now, let's start by getting one thing straight. I'm not a do-gooder. If you're a bum, if you can't break off with a booze or whatever it is that makes you a bad risk, then get out. Now, I don't pretend to tell you how to find happiness in love when every day is just a struggle to survive. But I do insist that you do survive because the days and the years ahead are worth living for. One day soon, man is going to be able to harness incredible energies, maybe even the atom, energies that could ultimately hurl us to other worlds in in some sort of spaceship. And the men, that reach out into space, will be able to find ways to feed the hungry millions of the world and to cure their diseases. They will be able to find a way to give each man hope and a common future. And those are the days worth living for. Our deserts will bloom. Development of atomic power is years away. Space flight years after that. Speculation, gifted insight. 
but it will come. I find her most uncommon, Mr. Spock. We have to believe that she starts this movement, this pacifist movement. And I think for the, then to have the ending whereby they have to stop the pacifist movement from being formed because World War II goes wrong if it does. I think that's quite nuanced, a new, nuanced idea, you know, that inadvertently that could happen. I don't think it's a, it doesn't feel to me like a simplistic right wing idea. I think it feels like quite a kind of interesting, you know, who knows what happens, who, who knows one thing can lead to another, even though you don't intend it, as you mentioned. I think it's just naturally progressing, like, you know, policy of non-intervention, wouldn't it? Because the United yeah. States had to be provoked into World War Two. You know, there's a case where if the Japanese hadn't attacked, how long would it have taken? And would it have been so long that they didn't develop the atom bomb? There's a lot of things that can deviate, can't they, off of certain decisions. And it was a popular thing to stay out of it. So it does Yeah, oh completely. It yeah. doesn't feel like a million miles from the truth, does it, to have a character that would convince, you know, the president of a course of action like this. Yeah, it's touching on, yeah, right, exactly. And it's touching on the whole big ideas. Interventionism, is interventionism a good thing? You know, imperialism. I mean, it's, it's touching on all these things. It's, it, I mean, yeah, it, it's pretty, it's heavyweight stuff. Well, uh, I should say that this episode was first broadcast, as you say, boy, in the year of your birth, 6th of April, 1967. And I was going to say, I mean, <laughs> fucking hell, uh, we talk about getting TV shows late now from the uh, States. But this, as I say, broadcast April 67, first broadcast in the UK on the 26th of July, 1969, two and a half wow. years. Wow. It took us to get season one of Star Trek. And I was just like, oh, like, uh, so of course you've been two years old at the time. Do you think you, you saw this on original airing point? <laughs> I mean, I'd like to claim I did, <laughs> but, I, but um, I don't think I can really claim that. I mean, did it? It's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, I haven't even checked, but I, I, th I think from then on, really, because obviously there's the limited number of Star Trek original series episodes. I'm pretty, so yes. In my memory, BBC pretty much repeated it fairly constantly, but I'm not sure whether that's actually actually, actually did or whether it just felt that way to me. I mean, it's quite possible at the end of the day, like if they owned the rights. I mean, there wasn't as much TV to go around then, was there? No, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah 100%. <laughs> just and the other, shoving it on. The amazing thing is, as, as we've said, it's the this is the 28th episode in a 29 episode first season. What a bizarre... First of all, 29, not 30. Tw uh, 29 <laughs> episodes of Star Trek for, in one season. That is astonishing, isn't it, when you think about it? What a whole different... Well, yeah, and I think if you include the original pilot, The Cage, it clocks up to 30, I think. Like, oh, I see. Uh, uh, right. That. Right, within, fair enough. The, within the seat within the season one, which is the yeah. kind of unaired at the time pilot uh, with with Pike in it and all that, like which yeah is absolutely insane. I mean mm. that many episodes plus they are longer than they're like 50, 50 minutes right like, kind of things. So they're longer right. than our standard network episodes of like you know later on. Like you know he's he's mad and season one. I mean uh, I think season one of Star Trek the original series is pretty amazing it's, it's got a pretty yeah. high hit rate throughout like really impressive iconic episodes and ideas being presented in that first season yeah I mean it's yeah. a very impressive first season and one of the things that struck me is of course I was saying about Harlan Ellison being one of the inspirations for the Terminator earlier and what struck me when i was watching this was i was like oh yeah i can really see that because weirdly in this kirk and mccoy do take on a slightly t800 and carl reese dynamic because essentially kirk as much as he doesn't want to is the one who has to make sure that joan collins does die and mm. um mccoy kind of the is the one trying to stop it yeah, it's like the anti-Karis, not like come with me if you want to live. It's uh, come with me so I can make sure you die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it is very interesting to see Kirk and McCoy kind of making their own personal connections with Edith Keeler, kind of completely yeah. isolated from each other before they come together at the end. Like, you know, and, and they're gradually sort of, Kirk and Spock are sort of piecing it together in terms of like, oh, he must have saved her in like another reality he he's going to say like almost like oh that, yeah uh, but they would have gone uh, out if it wasn't yeah exactly. she already had a date to go see a clark gable movie because there was actually filmed additional lines you know where he kind of like flirts a little bit more uh which I've, i i came directly from the Broadway vault to join you gentlemen here tonight 
uh, and watch <laughs> the outtakes of this episode. So uh, fresh in my mind. Oh yeah, well of course we interviewed Roger Lay Jr., who is one of the main guys behind all the Star Trek kind of Blu-ray sets and everything like that. And uh, the mastermind by the Roddenberry Vault, as you say, Paul, which is this kind of compilation of lots and lots of outtakes and deleted scenes for Star Trek, the original series. I remember Roger being very enthusiastic about the fact that the Roddenberry Vault had alternative takes and angles of the death of Edith Keeler in the uh, And indeed it does. I, I <laughs> thought I couldn't approach uh, it to out viewing those alternate angles for myself. <laughs> yeah, that, so what is it, what's quite... the difference then? Because I thought I think the that last scene is really well directed. There's that weird kind of there's a couple of um, kind of uh, zooms, aren't there? Kind of with the camera suddenly zooms into a close up on Shatner's face and Deforest Kelly's face while the, she's being run over. I thought it was very well done that that sequence actually. So how is it different oh, in the outtakes? Think, well, it's not really different. It's just the unedited shots, really. So it's just, right. it, it just shows what what great job the editor did. And I'm not sure if those zooms were kind of added in post uh, or were done in camera. I can't really tell. No, looking at it again. No. But it's um, it certainly just shows the other shot of her sort of the, the truck approaching and then she falls down. You know, and obviously cutting out the middle section of her, you know, not obviously hitting the truck. <laughs> just, yes. I think that's what you're referring to. It's like you get a full angle of her getting hit. It's like no, you just see her getting, you know, falling. <laughs> 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 but, uh, but it just, but it, it does undermine the power of the edit, like cutting to Shatner, gripping Bones and that kind of stuff and selling it on his reaction. Mm, yeah. And Bones' reaction more so, I think, either that just make the power of the moment come alive. It's really interesting. Chilly. I have a yeah. wider point, actually. I feel, going back to the, the hoary old, you know, what version of Star Trek is the best, one of the reasons why I still think the original series is the best, best Star Trek is, I, in a weird way, this is less dated than, you know, Next Generation and Deep, mm-hmm. Space, Deep Space Nine because... It's got a kind of timeless quality to it, I think, you know, the way that these are made. This, this episode is a classic example of it. It doesn't feel that... I mean, it, you know, obviously, it's in a different universe from what we get now on TV. But I do think the kind of 80s, 90s version of Star Trek somehow feel more kitsch and more, you know, kind of overthinking the design and all of that. Well, this is quite basic, going from their costumes to, you know, the sets and everything, and the editing and the directing. But that basicness actually works in its favour, I think. Well, it's a purity, isn't it? Yeah. To these stories. Like, you know, there's there's a pared-down nature, because these are the first time out of the gate. Because we were talking about the fact that these would be, these stories would essentially be, retold in other ways in other Star Trek series, but also just sci-fi in general. I mean, to be honest, you look at something like this and you think, well, something like this has had to have influenced something like Back to the Future. You know what I mean? There's, oh, a, yeah. there's a lot yeah. of DNA um, shared yeah. between those things. And I think when you're looking at those kind of you know iconic ideas done for the first time, there can't help but be like a leanness mm. To that that maybe isn't there with the uh the later kind of iterations and i think you know obviously also it does help like just on a visual level that this is shot on film so of course you can uh now remaster it like beautifully in hd and you know we can all watch it on netflix looking sharp as fuck and it doesn't look like you know an insanely old show like it looks pin sharp it you know it's very uh, it's got a very unique visual look because it's got that kind of you know pop art colouring yeah. of yeah. those mm-hmm. kind of shows of the time. Have you? Did you see the quote? Oh. There's a quote. I mean, I'm literally just going to read this from Wikipedia, but the, this quote is incredible. Harlan Ellison quote about working with on on this episode. He said, "Every thug and studio putz and semi literate bandwagon <laughs> jumper and merchandiser has grown fat as a maggot in a corpse of what I created." I mean, that is a good, wow. That is a good quote. He's not holding back. He's not holding back there. Jeez. I, I would change the locks. Yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah, would change yeah. the locks, yeah. Uh, Gene Roddenberry, like, okay, <laughs> thanks, mate. Yeah, we'll, we, we won't be uh, asking you to write any more scripts. Season two, yeah. Like, season two, we'll call you. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But talking oh, of the, I, talking I of the influence thing. reason why this episode may hold up as well is because it's it's not an effects heavy right. episode. That's true. It doesn't yeah. rely on, you know, battles in space or you know vast cities of, you know, alien technology. Mm. Um and there's not any alien designs other than the Guardian itself. 
like the archway, which is simple, you know. Yeah. The other influence, you mentioned Back to the Future. Do you know what struck me the influence of? Is Have you seen Devs, the Alex mm. Garland series, science fiction series? Yeah, 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 I have. Yeah. Well, that because that has, spoiler alert, by the way, to anyone who hasn't seen it. It's big, it's big spoiler alert. Please don't, you know, fast forward if you don't want to know what happens in Devs or what it's about. But Devs depicts a, a um, tech company where they are basically, what they're doing is they're creating a way of seeing moments from the universe at any point in time in a rather similar way. And the way that um, this visualizes, the way that in, in this episode, you know, they actually show, you know, Roman revolutions and Nazis on that screen kind of thing, basically, mm. that's, that's, that's basically dramatizing the fact that this portal can take you anywhere and can show you what's happened in the past is the thing that happens in devs, basically. It's kind of what they're all, what the whole series is about, is what it would mean if you could see a moment in front of your eyes, visualize any moment in time. And um, I, I haven't checked. I have, I have no idea whether, um, whether Alex Garland is a Star Trek fan, but I do feel it's, a, it's, a, it's a quite a coincidence that this feels like a, you know, decades before a similar kind of idea. Yeah, I think that's what comes into what Liam was saying about the original series still feeling so pure, because of course it is great sci-fi ideas and coming at a time when it is early enough that it could very well be the first time it's been depicted. I mean, you had the Twilight Zone late 50s, early 60s, so that obviously had a lot of kind of one-and-done ideas in there. But this kind of gets to play around a bit more with uh, with ongoing characters in these same sort of ideas. And yeah, you're, you're right, boy. like the, the devs thing, because that's kind of like sort of seeing alternate realities go on where there's tons of versions of yourself going around with different choices. And, and you know, the, the main kind of conundrum in this episode here is, you know, which timeline is correct for a lot of it. It's kind of like, yeah. you know, well, which one do we need to save? The one where she dies, the one where she lives? And, you know, being forced to let somebody die just to write the future asks such a big question to us all, you know, would you be able to do it, essentially? I think that's why tying that decision to a character that Kirk has really fallen for is kind of what makes it such a kicker, because it's like it's not just as easy as we got to go and kill Hitler, like that's an easy yes or no. It's like, you know, if something... It's kind of... I guess it's like Tony Stark in Endgame as well, you know, he's, he's fearful of messing about in the past because he now has his daughter, and it's kind of like, you know, what can you face losing to kind of do the right thing? And uh, and yeah, and I think this is just an episode that really kind of like taps into the high concept idea in such an interesting way, whilst being able to keep it very grounded and, you know, outside of some period details, you know, it's, as we've said, it's a very uh, episode light on the uh, visual effects and everything. So and that's kind of, you know, what the best sci-fi can do. It can really just bring it down to the grounded level. And yeah, I mean, I'd be amazed at how many people are influenced by by trek and probably this episode in particular without even without even knowing it like i i bet you know i do wonder has alex garland seen this episode or is he even aware of it but i think yeah. you know the the ramifications of this episode's influence goes through so much stuff <clears throat> that you can just trace it all the way back straight to there Oh, completely. And as I said, I mentioned Doctor Who, but Doctor Who has, you know, on a constant basis, is going back to that the, 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 yes. this kind of dilemma, the moral dilemma of, mm. of changing of changing a timeline for the sake of history, and you know, and all, all of that. Yeah. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? Because although there were time travel, obviously many time travel stories before this, I'm trying to think of a time travel narrative prior to this that didn't just do the thing. Obviously, you know, there was, a, again, lots of time travel narratives that handled the idea of the butterfly effect, kind of like, you know, if you do uh, something uh, in the past, like, it will affect the future and all that and kind of, you know, change the future. But I can't think of another time travel narrative that adds the emotional element of this does, of I am now forced to sacrifice something or someone I love in order to preserve the future. I can't mm. think of that idea being done prior to this. Prior to and this, the fact no. that it is somebody no. who he has met that episode. You know, it's not a uh, supporting character that's been with us the whole series. The fact that it is a guest star character. And even so, as we've said, you know, it doesn't take long for us to really buy that he would have fallen for... Uh... In the other, another outtake as well, they go. there's more dialogue for Shatner on the stairs where she almost falls and you know, breaks her neck <laughs> and he stops her. He says, you know, you don't know how long I've searched the stars for someone like you. She says, I'm falling for you, Mr. Kurt. It kind of brings it home that he, you know, we know him as a character at this point that has had relationships, many of them. And just it, there's there's somebody in this person that's mm. different and uh, and unique. So it's good that that sense comes across. I mean, I, I've always felt that, but it, was, it didn't really need saying explicitly 
Well, yeah, yeah she's a real kindred spirit, isn't she? And you get that idea of, you know, people often say, you know, what are the chances of, of meeting your soulmate or the one, like, in the time that you're alive, maybe you were just born in the wrong era. And it feels like there's a sense of that, where, you know, Kirk's managed to find somebody very forward-thinking and progressive back in the 30s who, who seems to be, you know, the one for him. And it makes it all the more sad that he kind of has to... That he was even in the position to meet her in the first place, which is great. And then that he has to knowingly say goodbye so soon. It's it's, it's very tragic. I mean, you know, he, so what you like about Shatner's acting, but he kind of sells it, you know, that he's fallen for her. Basically falls, you know, it's kind of love at first sight-ish, isn't it? Or love at, you know, lo- mm. love at second sight at least. And I think it's quite cleverly done on his part, really. It's kind of all doe-eyed and, you know, kind of like, and not creepy. I think, you know, you'd half expect, I haven't, I have, this is the first time I've watched, rewatched this episode for, I have to say, years. And I was half dreading it because you half expect, oh, maybe, you know, that Shatner's been going to be really creepy to this lovely woman played by Joe Collins. But actually, their relationship is kind of, is very even, you know, and she's attracted to him, he's attracted to her. Um, it kind you know, it, it actually feels quite not, quite a nice way of doing it, rather than how it could have been if he'd have been, you know, in, it's slightly more leering about her. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I think you, you just have to look at that scene, which I, I think, it feels quite iconic now when they're walking along together looking at the stars to yeah. uh, the soundtrack of Goodnight Sweetheart. And, you know, it's, it's a very romantic, gentle scene. And uh, one thing it did make me think was, is the reason Nicholas Lindhurst time travel um, <laughs> love triangle uh, sitcom is called Goodnight Sweetheart? Is it because of this scene? Oh, I mean, yeah, maybe. Yeah, good point. Because it has a sweet art playing in the background. It bloody does, so yeah. Because really like, it would make sense, but it's a really iconic time travel story from that time. I mean, this is Absolutely, definitely yeah. a, a, a diversion. It's night <laughs> East Nicholas Lindhurst <laughs> time travel <laughs> yeah. sitcom, Good Night Sweetheart. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, fair enough, <laughs> You know, though. it did make yeah. me think of that. Why does Spark call you captain? Were you in the war together? We served together. And you um, don't want to talk about it? Why? Uh, did you did you do something wrong? Are you afraid of something? Whatever it is, let me help. Let me help. A hundred years or so from now, I believe, a famous novelist will write a classic using that theme. He'll recommend those three words even over, I love you. Centuries from now. Who who is he? Where does he come from? Um, Where will he come from? Silly question. Want to hear a silly answer? Yes. A planet circling that far left star in Orion's belt. See? And and I think we're missing one huge moment as well. I think, oh God, it's absolutely killing me when he has to beam up at the end. Yeah. And that's a very controversial line this day in terms of like, you know, actually having that been able to say hell on television but it feels earned captain the enterprise is up there they're asking if we want to beam up Wasn't it the first time it was allowed to be used as a as a uh, like a swear basically? I can't remember. If, I don't know if it was or not, but it's it certainly was a rarity. Mm. Mm. Very down. But originally, whole Lenson's script, of course, it said, "Let's get the fuck out of here." But you know, he wouldn't. Have <laughs> <that>. so, <laughs> I mean, like, maybe you I are ready for that just yet. I think that that sounds like the Discovery version yeah. of this scene, isn't it? Yeah, that is <laughs> definitely. Let's be edgy. Yeah. Let's hey fuck now. Yeah. Right, shall we move on to uh, final thoughts on the episode? Yep. Mm. Okay, cool. Boyd, do you want to go first? Well, I, I just think you know, I watched as I say, the first time. This is the first time I've watched it again for years, and um, I was very. It kind of reminded me why I loved it in the first place. Everything about it, the the scope of it, uh, as you say, the mix of the epic and the intimate is incredible in terms of the themes. And yeah, it's really, yeah, three or four people kind of sorting stuff out between them. Just the boldness of it, you know, that the, they show Nazis, you know, like that's quite a, that's quite a daring thing to do. I, I, even now, you know, when I see actual footage of Nazis on TV, you kind of go, oh, blimey, you know, that's that's a kind of daring move. And in a, in a science fiction, in a big mainstream science fiction primetime show to show actual Nazis and to have a storyline in which 
it's alluded to, you know, the possibility of what would happen if the Nazis won World War Two. It's all, it's heady stuff. So, yeah, I, I, I was, I was massively impressed by the whole thing I have to say and, and all the different things that's possibly inspired I feel like I now want to go and check with all, from from Nicholas Lindhurst to um, Alex Garland <laughs> I want to check with them whether they watched the episode <laughs> in the, originally yeah literally just go around <laughs> if that'd be the first question on ed- every interview look have yeah. you watched see you on Edge of Forever <laughs> Paul what are your Very, final thoughts I think you're right it's a blend of high concept but intimate small scenes with great character moments and the, the ending is one for the ages. Great performances. It has original score. It's really good. And I love, love the use of music just to kind of, it feels more special. It doesn't having like a almost recurring theme. So if people are a bit unsold on Star Trek Middle Street as a concept, and yes, you might have heard things about like somehow things have not aged as well in terms of the sexual politics. Try this one because it is, it passes the, you know, 21st century woke test, I would say, in terms of like, there's nothing here that's going to be particularly uh, alarming to oh, the world. Outside of uh, Shatner saying about Spock, my friend is obviously Chinese. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was oh, going to mention that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's like, yeah. oh dear. Oh, right. Yeah, maybe that was. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Which... Yeah, but apart from that, yes, I stand. Right. I stand corrected. I stand corrected. There is that. Yeah. <laughs> In the bin with you. <laughs> so yeah, like I, I, I think this is probably out of all the episodes I've seen of the original series, it probably is my favourite. I kind of think that it's held up in the regard it is for good reason. I do think it does a hell of a lot in its short running time and it really builds up a convincing romance between Kirk and Edith Keeler in it uh, and I think Shatner and Collins play that very very well and very convincingly and you know it all comes down to that final scene because it's actually been called masterfully set up uh, with both McCoy and Kirk having huge motivations to save Edith at the end and I think that kind of is that double-edged sword of of course Kurt instinctually goes to save her and Spock has to be like no Jim like you can't you've got to remember and it kind of snaps him out of it and he does step back and then McCoy just as they've been reunited goes to save her and then Kirk has to stop him and you know I think that's so it is so intense and emotional and it all happens so fast and then Shatner's performance as he's holding on to one of his best friends so tightly that look of emotion on his face where he can't watch what's happening can't watch the woman he loved dies in front of him uh, I think it's so moving and so beautifully performed. And, you know, Shatner, say what you like about him, but I always go back to this first season of although he has got a distinctive acting style, I think in this first season of Star Trek, it's before he kind of became a bit of a parody of himself. And I think he's still giving really great performances as Kirk. Um, I, I really think it's powerful and yeah I, I think it's an iconic episode of television for good reason and one of the best episodes of Star Trek there's ever been uh, Matt? Yeah man like yeah echo a lot of thoughts here I think I think this is a really good episode just to to, to initiate people as well because you know I, I watched quite a few of season one with some of my housemates and they were just like oh isn't always a bit iffy with uh, sexual politics and stuff. And it's like, you know, this episode takes you out of the, the kitsch world, the very, very kitsch world of the 60s kind of set and uh, and style and tells a lot more of a grounded story. And yes, his relationship with Edith Keeler is definitely not something we've seen before for how he's usually been been around the ladies. And I just think it's a really clever mix, as we've said, of high concept sci-fi idea erring on the side of you know what would you do in this situation as well as the bigger implications of starting and averting a war based on like a good decision that someone wants to make and the idea of it being the right thing at the wrong time and i just think you know the the capper of the ending of it all coming together is just so well done it's like there's a few things where you feel certain characters especially in shows like this where it's standalone episodes and there's tons of episodes per season where you do wonder like how much of what they go through is going to stick with them i think you get a bit of it 
in uh, Next Gen with Picard from uh, some of his episodes, especially after his Borg encounters. And I think this feels like one for Shatner. Like I can't, I haven't seen all of the original series, but like it feels like out of everything I've seen him go through, this is one that you could probably feel the weight and the ramifications of in him as it goes on. And uh, yeah, it would have been great to circle back to this story in some of the movies, perhaps. Like, I can't even recall now whether it, how much it gets referenced again, but it feels like something that would have been great to kind of bring back in a way towards the end of his kind of run there. But yeah, this is a fantastic episode, and it goes down in history quite rightly as, you know, one of the best for all the reasons we, we have said. Amazing. Yeah, no, really, really, really fantastic episode. And yeah, to all the James Dyer-style haters out there, check out this episode <laughs> and see what you're missing. Boyd, thank you so much for joining us and coming to tell Pleasure. us about your experiences with this episode. Uh, can you tell us where we can find you online and kind of hear more of you? Yeah, uh, it's my name, Boyd Hilton, um, on Twitter and um, Instagram and part of the TV podcast. And if you're an Arsenal fan, Footballistically Arsenal podcast, uh, yeah, that's me. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Absolute pleasure, mate, as always. And you can find us at Spotlight Pod on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, you can leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. And you can drop us an email at spotlightpod at gmail.com. But until next time, it is goodbye from me, Liam. It's goodbye from me, Matt. Goodbye, people. And goodbye from our guest, Mr. Boyd Hilton. Let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Leave us out. <laughs> Oosh.